Father, this is a story, uh, in part at least, about uh, how your word came in power and did a great work. And so we pray boldly that you would do the same. As we hear your word, not mine, yours, may it come with your power and help us to respond as the Ninevites did. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder how we're finding the book of Jonah so far. It's exciting stuff, isn't it? It's a great book, great in the sense that great things happen, great storms, a great fish, and here in chapter 3, a great city of great evil and a great turnaround. And of all the great things that happen in this book, what happens in chapter 3 here may be the greatest miracle of them all. There could be no uh, more unlikely city than Nineveh to hear the word of God and believe it. Their turning around is a miracle. They were so unlikely to accept Jonah's message that the Lord Jesus years later would use their example here to shame the unbelief of his own generation. Even Nineveh, he says, even Nineveh repented. And their turnaround is the sort of miracle that we struggle to believe could happen today on a national level. For example, could our great God turn around the United Kingdom with its great unbelief? It's great confusion about the most basic questions of life. It's stubbornness. It's great rejection of its Christian heritage. Or on a personal level, the family member who's put a great distance between themselves and the faith of their childhood. Uh, the colleague who finds your faith greatly amusing. Could God reach them the way he reached the great city of Nineveh? Well, may this chapter give us hope as we see God's great grace at work. Great grace producing first great faith. Scene one, great faith. Verses one to 5a. So chapter three, verse one, God's word comes to the prophet a second time. This is the God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. And the prophet's task is uh, much the same as it was at the start. Go to mighty Nineveh and preach God's message. And so uh, here's yet another miracle. Jonah actually goes. But his mission isn't a promising one, is it? What do we know about Nineveh already? It's a, a city great in wickedness, notorious for its wickedness. If you were uh, drawing up a strategic plan to spread the gospel around the world, you're not starting in Nineveh. They are the highest hanging fruit you could imagine, the least promising, the most closed place you would think. And Jonah's not exactly the most promising prophet, is he? That no matter how grateful he is for God's fishy rescue, given what we know about this man, and particularly what we learn in chapter 4, we're not expecting Jonah to take his task uh, with much enthusiasm. So a deeply unenthusiastic prophet is about to meet an immovable object. A prophet from a political backwater, not taken seriously by the Ninevites, uh, preaching about an unknown and disrespected God, and in the capital city of a global pagan superpower. A little bit like perhaps the man on Oxford Street who stands on his box with his placard and tells the crowd that the end is nigh as the, stop, the shoppers, at least those who notice him, give him a wide berth. A little bit like that, but without any of that man's admirable faith and commitment. Not very promising. But Jonah has said he'll go, and so he goes. And what does he preach? Well, his sermon in verse 4 there um, is uh, five words long in the original. Not much longer in English, is it? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And we read that, we think, is that really all he said? 
Now, it's all we're told, he said. It could be a summary. Sometimes the Bible does that. Maybe Jonah said more than just that one sentence. Maybe he went on to speak about God's mercy as well, how God had saved a sinner like him and could spare a city like theirs as well. Though, again, if you've read to the end of the book, maybe he didn't. Now, the point is, it wasn't the impressiveness of Jonah's preaching, as it's reported to us here, that made the difference. It's not exactly Martin Luther King or Barack Obama or any of the other orators of history, is it? No one's teaching English classes on oratory from Jonah's one-liner. And yet, what an impact. What an impact. It's as though the, the prophet uh, casually and unenthusiastically dropped a single match and a raging inferno of faith ripped through the city. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh, all the people, I think, believed God. In the unlikeliest of places, they believed. Why? If it wasn't Jonah's powerful preaching, why did they believe? Did he, did he offer up his fishy rescue as supporting evidence, a sign that he spoke from God? Uh, years later, the Lord Jesus would talk about the sign of Jonah. Uh, did, uh, did the Ninevites hear about God's miraculous rescue and see it as proof that Jonah really did speak for God? We're not told any of that here, though, are we? All we're told is that when they heard God's voice through the prophet, they believed it. And did you notice, it doesn't say they believed Jonah. See that in verse 5? Have a look with me. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They knew that the message they were hearing about coming judgment was a message from God himself. Now, this may be a particularly surprising example of this kind of straightforward faith, but it's uh, hardly the only one, is it? This is what happens when God determines to get through to someone. He speaks to them in such a way that they just know it's him speaking. Sometimes it comes through a slow and growing conviction over time. At other times, it's like a, a bolt from the blue. God speaks faith into the heart. And it shouldn't surprise us, should it, that God can do this? Human history is the story of what God does through His words. He sends stars into the sky. He creates great canyons in the earth. He fills the oceans with a million kinds of fish. I'll look at that later in Genesis 1. And God said, and it was so. You're talking of fish. Did you notice why the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land at the end of chapter 2. Just have a look back there, would you? Chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You see, the same creation that sprang into being at the sound of God's voice still obeys His command. And when the voice of the Lord comes with His authority, when it authenticates and proves itself in a person's heart, that person knows for sure that it's God they're hearing. We do want to hear Jesus preach this morning, don't we? The Apostle Paul describes this happening to the believers in Thessalonica. He writes, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. God's work through His Word. His Word comes to sinners with faith-generating power. 
And there are so many examples of this. In fact, there are so many examples of this in the room. God's word, if you're a Christian, came to you and gave birth to faith in your heart, no matter how unlikely or how poor the, the explanation of the message was that you heard. Have you ever heard the story of Spurgeon's conversion? You can't go too many sermons in a Baptist church like this without mentioning Spurgeon, so I'm going to tick that box this morning. Uh, Spurgeon was a, a famous British preacher in the 19th century. This church was started by one of his associates. You can uh, look that up online. And aged 15, I know uh, some of us uh, here are around about 15, so it's about your age. Uh, Spurgeon was at a, a low point in his life. He had a sense that he wasn't good enough for God, and he felt hopeless and then everything changed. And, and this is what he later wrote about that day. He says, I, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, he couldn't get to the place he was aiming for. He says, I, I turned down a court and came to a little Methodist chapel. And in that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose, a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach instead. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 45. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may, the biggest, may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. Now, I, said he in broad Essex, I, I won't do the accent, uh, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. Spurgeon continues. When he'd gone, got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. In other words, he was running out of material. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I'd not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only, as Spurgeon says, a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ. Just a tiny chapel in a snowstorm, 15 or so people present there as he was converted. The preacher who was supposed to be there stuck in the snow, and a man struggling to read the Bible out loud, struggling to fill 10 minutes, not very promising. And God's word came with unstoppable power. I saw first 
First time this week in West Wales that God is still speaking to 15-year-olds through weak preachers with unstoppable power today. Are you listening to his voice this morning? Is he at work in you the way he was at work in the Ninevites and then in a young Spurgeon and with so many others? Don't resist him. Repent. The second thing that uh, God's grace brought about in Nineveh, great repentance. This is verse uh, 5b to 9. What is the sign that God's word has truly been believed? And what does God's word produce in a person's heart? We're told here, clear and unambiguous repentance. So look down at verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. God's word in this wicked city brought about a profound repentance. They ate the food and wore the clothes of repentance. And it's everyone. Did you notice that? Even the king? And see how this extremely powerful man humiliates himself before the Lord there in verse 6. Taking off his royal robe, sitting down in the ash heap, and commanding that the people repent and cry out to Jonah's God for mercy, a God they've only just heard about. Verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from their evil way and from the violence that's in their hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. If we turn, God may turn. Repentance is simply turning away from sin and rebellion and towards mercy, forgiveness, and Christ's power to change us. And that determination to change, to turn and seek mercy here, it so takes hold of Nineveh, even the cows are wearing sackcloth. Did you see that? Verse 8, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. When God's word gets hold of a person, one of the telltale signs is that they repent. They turn away from their sin and towards their God. And this is what God's word does in us today, isn't it? You take, um, take preaching, for example. What is it that we want when we listen to preaching? Uh, we might want it mostly to soothe us. Uh, I remember one guy at a, a church I used to belong to, and the moment the sermon started, he'd fall asleep. Every time, it was like clockwork. So I used to watch him and just wait. There we, there we go. Uh, he didn't seem to fall asleep in the prayers. It, uh, it's tricky. It's not impossible to fall asleep in the songs, now, particularly if you've perfected the art of sleeping standing up and ideally with your eyes open. But the moment the ser- sermon started, he was gone. Of course, preaching can be soothing in a, in a good way, can't it? There are parts of Scripture that are written to comfort us, to ease our anxiety. There is a deep soul therapy often going on, isn't there, when God's Word is heard. And it's good that often we leave feeling much better than we came in. We're buoyed by the grace and mercy of God. And this is the kind of chapter that should do that, this in us. But the great goal in every sermon is transformation. It's more than therapy, it's transformation. God's word aims to change me so that I'm a different man leaving than I was coming in, to turn me away from my sin and towards the Lord Jesus and his repentance, his righteousness. And I need to ask myself, someone who wants to listen to preaching, is that what I want God's word to do in me? Do I want it to turn me around? You remember Prime Minister uh, Margaret Thatcher's famous phrase? This lady is not for turning. The Christian must always be for turning in this sense. 
every time I come in and listen to God's word, every time God's word is opened anywhere near me, I must be for turning, asking the Lord to expose parts of me that need that turning work. Lord, where do I need to change? Where do I need to repent? Where have I been walking in the wrong direction? Where am I wandering away, needing to be brought back? This is why we listen to preaching. It's why we uh, sit down with our Bibles on our own. It's why we read our Bible with our families. Lord, don't just inform me. Don't just console me. Change me. Transform me by your word. Make me a different person. Turn me around. When we gather in our fellowship groups, what we want most of all is for God's word to change us as we turn from our sin and trust in him again. Are we a repentant church? We have a reputation for being a Bible-teaching church. Are we a Bible-living church? You know, when the Lord Jesus held up Nineveh as an example to his own generation, it was their repentance that he focused on in particular. The men of Nineveh, he said, will rise up at the judgment with, this, with his generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If they repented at the voice of Jonah, how much more should we repent at the voice of the Lord Jesus? May his grace make us quick to repent. And as we repent, quick to find his mercy. Thirdly, great mercy, verse 10. You might have realized by now that this whole book is a study in God's mercy and grace. And verse 10 here is a wonderful example of mercy. As soon as the people turn uh, from their evil, God turns from his promised disaster. It might be that we're a little bit troubled by the apparent inconsistency here. I mean, didn't Jonah back in verse 4 promise God's judgment on this city? And there in verse 10, God seems to break his promise. But this was all as God had said in advance. Uh, so, for example, in Jeremiah 18 verse 7, God had said, uh, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And God was faithful to his promise, as he always is. They turned, and so he turned. But of course, his grace goes further still, doesn't it? Why, why did Nineveh believe and repent in the first place? Both faith and repentance are gifts that God gives. They're not something we can generate ourselves. They're something that must be received by him and his word in our lives. They're grace to sinners. And why were they warned in the first place? Because God in his mercy sent them a prophet. And it was stubborn mercy, wasn't it, on God's part. He, he needed to send a mighty storm and then a great fish. Both God's mercy to Nineveh. He so wanted them to hear and believe and repent and be spared. The whole story so far has been one of God's mercy to this wicked city. His absolute determination, despite Jonah's reluctance to spare a city, what it so clearly deserves. And these are the lengths that God goes to to show mercy to sinful people. And if this story teaches us that, how much more? The sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was mercy, wasn't it, that sent him to earth? Mercy that had him live among us in all of our sin and suffering. Mercy drove him to the garden and then to the trial and then to the cross. Mercy kept him on the cross as he bore God's righteous judgment for sinful people like us. Mercy took him to the grave. And mercy for us rose him again and gave us new life. And then it was mercy, wasn't it, that got that message of forgiveness by faith in Christ to us. God came after us 
the way he came after Jonah and then Nineveh. He sent a Jonah to us, maybe much more enthusiastic about God's mercy than Jonah was, a parent, a friend, a youth worker, a preacher. His mercy opened our hearts and gave us the precious gift of sorrow for our sin, and then his mercy forgave us. God's heart is filled with mercy for undeserving people like you and me. He is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is rich in mercy. If you're new to Christianity, you're trying to put the pieces of the jigsaw together as you join us week by week. Verse 10 is going to help you make great progress. It is Christianity in a nutshell. Uh, It doesn't describe a self-improvement program. It isn't a ladder to climb. It doesn't operate on the basis of merit. It's sinful people turning back to God and God forgiving them completely. Is it time this morning that you did that for the first time? Don't think that you're too far gone. Look at Nineveh. If there's mercy for them, there's mercy for you. Will you turn? Turn and find God's amazing mercy and grace. His arms are open wide for you. Well, as we said at the beginning, in a book full of miracles, this is perhaps the greatest miracle of them all. And I wonder, in our own nation, in our own city of London, do we believe that God's word can still have this powerful effect? Can it still powerfully grant faith and repentance in in such numbers as we see here? Well, forgive another dip into British history, but uh, the the 18th century in this country saw a great movement of God as the gospel was preached through uh, men like uh, George Whitfield. Do go and read about him later on online. Uh, People repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ in vast numbers. And in the classic introduction to um, the biography of uh, Whitfield's life, his biographer writes this. He says, for the past 30 years, numerous evangelical people, that's gospel-believing people, have been saying there can be, never be another revival, another work like the one we saw in the 18th century here. At the times are too evil. Sin is now too rampant. Now, the days of revival are gone forever. Now, the history of the 18th century revival, he writes, entirely contradicts that view. It demonstrates that true revival is the work of God, not man. Of God who's not limited by such circumstances as the extent of human sin or the degree of mankind's unbelief. In the decade between 1730 and 1740, the life of England was foul with moral corruption and crippled by spiritual decay. Yet it was in such conditions, conditions remarkably similar to those of the English-speaking world today, as he writes, and we might say, well, and today too, that God arose in the mighty exercise of his power, which became the 18th century revival. Can God do in London today what he did then? Of course he can, by his powerful word. Can God do it in your workplace or among your colleagues, among your friends at school or university? Of course he can, by his word. Can God do it among us here? Can he revive our hearts, give us a new hatred of sin and a new hunger for repentance and mercy and transformation? Of course he can. He is the God of great grace. Let's pray together.